Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. And so Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that, this, that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God? By putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as we are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things things known from long ago. And then James said this, it is my judgment therefore that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. This is God's word. Not a lot of people choose to preach on these uh, verses of scripture uh, because it's about a theological debate and let's just face it, uh, those aren't much fun. They're kind of boring and dry and mundane, and I really don't like to get up to my waist in theological debate. But this is a pivotal moment in the history of the New Testament church. And honestly, this question that is being debated in these verses 
continue to surface over and over again throughout the last 2,000 years. It grows out of a tension of our understanding of grace and truth. It grows out of the tension between those things. Namely, how good does a person have to be in order to be a part of the church? That's a question. That's a question that Christians and those that espouse Christianity have tried to address throughout the age of the church. How good does a person have to be to be a part of the church, to be saved according to the word of God? While we don't hear of groups that are requiring circumcision in order to be saved much anymore, which is really good news for some of us, it might cut away at church growth, the pun was intended there, Many still have a very moralistic approach to salvation where extra requirements get added to salvation. But whenever the gospel becomes Jesus and something extra, it is no longer the gospel. I'm going to repeat that. Whenever the gospel becomes Jesus and something extra, it is no longer the gospel. It, if, if, if we add requirements to God's free gift of salvation, it's no longer grace and grace alone. And that's the only way by which we are saved. Paul and Barnabas have been sent off by the church in Antioch and they are seeing tremendous response from Gentiles everywhere they go. In fact, in most every instance, they go into the synagogue to speak to Jewish people first. And in most instances, the vast majority of Jews reject their message and then they pivot and they go and start speaking to Gentiles and people start responding to the gospel. Miracles start happening. The Holy Spirit gets poured out. All sorts of things begin popping and churches, the miraculous growth of churches are happening everywhere. And Paul and Barnabas are seeing this tremendous response everywhere they go, people committing their lives to following Jesus. Those that do not have Jewish background, have not adhered to the Jewish law, have not kept all the rituals that Jews kept, but they're hearing a gospel of grace that their sins can be covered and paid for by the sacrifice that Jesus came and paid for all of us. And in so doing, these Gentiles are coming into a powerful expression of living out the kingdom life. But now, some 18 years after Pentecost, more than a decade passed when Peter himself saw the Holy Spirit fall down on the Gentile, a Roman centurion named Cornelius. Ten years after that, Jewish hardliners have reemerged in the story. They are increasing their demand that Gentile believers keep all of the Mosaic law, including being circumcised, 
in order to be saved. These hardliners even intimidated Peter at one point who wobbled in his own stance during a visit that he made to the, to the church in Antioch. Peter writes, excuse me, Paul writes about it when he's writing to the church in Galatia. Here's what he says about this, this, this encounter with Peter. Galatians 2.11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, that's another name for Peter, Cephas, I opposed him to his face. You got to love Paul. <clears throat> he does not lack for Matsi. Elizabeth's uh, daughter's got a good name there, Meryl. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. <laughs> I love that he gives them a new name, the circumcision party. Just goes ahead and calls it what it is. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically. These are Jewish believers here, along with him. So that even Barnabas, what? Your buddy Barnabas? Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? It took someone with Paul's steely conviction and abrasive personality to confront Peter and his own good buddy Barnabas and all the other Jewish believers for their hypocrisy. He called them out because he recognized the pivotal importance of this issue, that it was central to the gospel of grace. For God saved all of them and us by his grace when we believed. And we don't earn it by the things we do or the rules we keep or the rituals we perform. Salvation is a gift from God. A free gift from God. That's why Paul is forever opposing those who would proclaim what he calls a different gospel, just as he did to the Galatian church. And he wrote to them saying this in Galatians 1.6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. If we as believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus, if we as his church start adding regulations to his gospel of salvation, whether it's circumcision or dietary laws or Sabbath rules or whether it's our own views on moralistic things like drinking alcohol or not or wearing makeup or whether you should homeschool your children or who you should vote for, then we are turning to a different gospel. Not a lot of am, amens at that point. 
If we choose to add things to the gospel of grace, we are promoting a different gospel. We are reducing the atonement in Christ and we are adding to it our own efforts and achievements. Acts 15 is here for us and it is central and it is important for the church history. We call it the council in Jerusalem. And first we hear it from Peter who has been confronted by Paul earlier and so he has figured out where he had gone astray and he has repented and he is now being super clear along with Paul and the others that we are only saved by grace. Paul has thankfully uh, addressed Peter and Peter has thankfully humbled himself and repented and now he is rightly saying that God makes no difference between Jew or Gentile. That we are both saved the same way, not by what we do, but by what Jesus did. <clears throat> both are saved by grace and grace alone, through faith, not by ritual, not by ceremony. And then Barnabas and Paul stand up and start proclaiming all of these miraculous things that they are seeing. And we've already seen that people that are hearing this are praising God because of it. You can't help but praise God when you see the power of God revealed in people's lives. Amen? When I see things happening in your life, when we see things happening in the midst of our congregation, in the people that we're reaching, and God is at work and he is doing miraculous things, there is only one response. Praise Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. Praise the Lord. His gospel of grace is at work and operating again. And then, finally, the leader of the New Testament Jerusalem church stands up. His name is James. He's not the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. We already know that that particular James was beheaded by King Herod. This is the half-brother of Jesus himself. His mother is the same Mary that bore the Messiah. Well, this brother, James, was one that was skeptical early on in Jesus' ministry. We can read about it in the Gospels where the brothers and mother came and tried to talk Jesus some sense into him because they thought he was a little crazy. So this, this James has not always been a follower of Jesus, but he has dramatically been converted. And this is one of the reasons why I strongly believe in the true resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, because you can't pull something like that over on your brother. Your brother knows. James would know. He would know if Jesus actually rose from the dead, which he did. And now this James has become a leader in the Jerusalem church. He is known as James the Just or James the Elder. He's the writer of the epistle of James that we have in the New Testament. And James pulls out a quote from the book of Amos, an Old Testament prophet. And he says, God will restore David's fallen tent, his kingly power, to draw even Gentiles that are called to God's name into the kingdom. 
You see, even the Old Testament prophets speaks to this. Just Jewish mindset couldn't get their head around it. But James begins to recognize this is something God has always ordained. And then he recognizes that what's happening in Paul and Barnabas and what happened in in Peter's ministry with Cornelius and what's happened in Philip's ministry through Samaria and throughout all of these areas is the revelation of God that all people belong to him, not just the Jewish nation. So James makes a momentous proposal to the church in this council that is sitting here. It's significant. It is high drama. People are watching. They are wondering where we're going to go from here. And it matters what they decided at this day. If they decided differently, it would have erratically changed the message of the gospel. God would have had to redo something, had to set something else into order. But thank God his spirit prevailed that day and these leaders stood for the truth that salvation is by grace and grace alone. Not by what you do, but by what Jesus did. And so he makes this proposal. He releases the Gentile Christians from the demands of the Pharisees. They do not have to become Jews in order to be Christians. And that was huge. Up to this point, Christianity was seen as a sect of the Jewish faith. But this makes it very clear that you don't have to be Jewish in order to follow Jesus. And so then they go on. James makes this proposal and then he says and gives them the simplest of guidelines for living a holy life in a pagan culture. If we read on in verse 20 beyond, we would recognize that he calls upon them to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and to abstain from sexual immorality and to abstain from meat strangled of animals still containing blood. Why did he do these things? Well, in essence, James is doing two things in these guidelines beyond um, what they're saying today. First, he's showing that we all become a new creation when we are born again, resulting in new behavior on our part, not as a requirement for salvation, but as the evidence of it. When you're a new creation, You act differently and you do new things because he has made all things new. You don't have to do those things to earn his salvation. But when you are saved, what will begin to be birthed and grow out of you is the new result of the new creation. And secondly, he is asking them to respect their Jewish brothers and sisters who are also saved by grace. And they have certain sensitivities. And in order for these two groups to be unified as one body, it would be best for them to prefer one another. Now, that's the theological wading into up to my waist. Why do I even bring this up today? Why do we even talk about it today in the year 2022? Don't we have an understanding of grace as a church? Don't we preach that here? 
Well, if you know me, yes, we do. We preached a lot. Why is it that it's so important that we would consider this today? Well, I believe it's important because I think it highlights a guiding principle that we as disciples of Jesus must live with today. There's a guiding principle in here that we have to give ourselves to repeatedly. Think back to verse 19 where James said, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I think if it would be helpful if we printed something like that over the doors of our, of our church. If right out as you walked out of here or as you're coming in, up there above your head it said, don't make it difficult for those who are turning to God. Don't make it difficult for those who are turning to God. Any obstacle that we build needs to be tore down. Every preference that we give ourselves to that becomes our habit and our ritual and our thing, it needs to be eroded. Things that we might be comfortable with, things that make it easy for us, but it makes it difficult for those who are turning to God. Let's get rid of it. Why would we hang on to that when our call is to reach those that are turning to God? Why would we want to make it difficult and add regulation and add requirement to them when Jesus didn't add it himself? I think about it in how I speak on Sundays. I don't want to make it difficult for people who may not be familiar with Jesus and his ways, but who are turning to him. I don't want to put an obstacle in their way. I don't want to use certain language or use certain catchphrases that they don't understand. I don't want to be so cerebral that it doesn't hit someone's heart. I don't want to put a blockade in front of what God is doing in their hearts. I don't want to make it difficult for those turning to God by being a church full of cliques that are too hard to penetrate. I don't want people to show up and not be able to feel loved and accepted and brought into the fellowship. I want them to find that this is a place where they can belong as they're coming to belief in Christ Jesus. I don't want us to make it difficult for those because we seem to act like we've got our act together. And we seem to promote this idea that until you get your act together, you can't be included. I don't want to make that difficult for people. I don't want to make it difficult for people being drawn to our church who have heard that God is doing something here in a small group, in a Sunday gathering, in an outreach that's going on at a high school or at a Sarah Court walkthrough. I don't want to make it difficult. I want people to be able to come as the Lord is drawing them and as they're turning to him. I don't want to make it difficult for people who look different than me or who think different than me or who act different than me or who vote differently than me. I don't want to make it difficult for people who are turning to the Lord. I don't want to make it difficult for those who are struggling with same-sex attraction 
or with identity issues or with other divergent views that we don't really feel comfortable with, but still who God seems to be wooing them and they are beginning to turn to him. I don't want to stigmatize someone else's sin by treating my sin as if it is more acceptable or more manageable. If we're not careful, we will drift from grace to law. It's the human tendency to do so. If we're not careful, we'll start focusing on external conformity rather than internal transformation. And we'll find ourselves pacifying those we already got and forsaking those we're called to reach. As Andy Stanley said recently, we have to work hard not to be a church where grace and truth conflict, but rather where they coexist because they exist both fully in Jesus. Jesus was full of grace and full of truth. And as such, we shouldn't make it hard for those who are turning to God. Here are three suggestions that Stanley makes, and I couldn't come up with better ones myself. He suggests this. Let's be more concerned with who we are reaching rather than who we are keeping. Secondly, let's always err on the side of grace. And thirdly, let's remain open-handed in attempts to advance the message of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. I'm going to challenge us as a church community, as is my inclination often. Let's not make it hard for those who are turning to God today. We don't have to be insecure about our stance, about the grace that's been shed upon us. He saved us. He has secured our salvation. And he has sent us on a mission to tell that message to everyone that we meet. We don't have to argue people into the kingdom. We just have to not get in the way when God is wooing them. The Holy Spirit has been sent to draw men and women by the conviction of his spirit into a place of responding to him. And as they're coming to him, our job is just to celebrate what God is doing. To, to cheer them on as they're responding to him. To be a support and love them as they're processing all of it. And then to give discipleship as the Lord gives opportunity. We don't have to argue people into the kingdom. Just don't get in the way. May the Lord help us hear his word. Would you stand? Lord, we want to be in the midst of your presence. Not to have it all used just on us. To make us transmitters of your goodness and your grace and your mercy to those around us. Lord, help us as a people to be salt and light in this day and age. To be your messenger of grace to people that are are dying under the burden of requirement 
and regulation. Lord, I pray that you will let your spirit draw our friends, those we're praying for, those we're concerned about, those that we're interceding for even now, that your spirit will apprehend them for that for which they were apprehended, that you would draw them into a place of receiving you and the grace that you have showered upon us, that they would come into a knowing, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you'll break shackles off people's hands, that you'll set people free, that you'll let the eyes see, let the ears hear again. And I pray, Lord, that you'll use us as vessels of mercy in their lives. I pray for anyone here today that is struggling with a limitation that is not from you, that is coming from the enemy, that is coming from their circumstances. We pray that freedom would come to them in the name of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would set the captive free and that where there is freedom, your spirit would reign in their hearts. Lord, thank you for being with us today. Send us out now as we go with your word and your spirit propelling us into your purpose. We ask all this in Jesus' name. God bless you this morning as you're dismissed. If you're in need of ministry or prayer, leaders will be here at the front and would love to pray with you. God bless you. You're dismissed.